Welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are in Chapter 2, still talking about functional programming. And recently we were talking a little bit about category theory, and category theory is um, quite the involved topic, uh, and it's um, we just touched on the absolute basics uh, of the idea that in category theory, it's attempting to abstract away from the idea of a sort of set theoretic function that takes in inputs and returns outputs. It's just saying, well, we just have a category consists of some objects. Category theory tries to be sort of, um, would prefer not to say what they mean by a collection of objects. It's just sort of, we've got some objects, and then between objects, we can have morphisms. And each morphism is just a thing that goes from but it can only go from one object to another. You cannot have a single morphism that goes between a bunch of different objects to other objects. You just have um, the basic setup of category theory. Morphism goes from one object to another. And they're intended to model functions. So if you were thinking you had a function from A to B, now you have to have a morphism. And you just think of it as an edge in a graph. It just goes from A to B. And categories... Um, in addition to having objects and morphisms, you have to be able to compose morphisms. So if there, if you have two morphisms, one from A to B and one from A to C, then any mathematical structure that's going to be a category has to have a composition of these two morphisms going from um, A to C. So uh, that's composition. And the categories are also required to have identity morphisms for any object, there's a special morphism that goes from that object to itself. And um, that identity morphism um, is an identity with respect to composition. So if you have the identity morphism and then compose it with something else, that's just, just the same as that something else. Um, so uh, anyway, those are, that's sort of the basics, the absolute basics of the definition of a category. Category theorists have layered a raft of um, subtle and complex definitions on top of this. Uh, um, but the thing I wanted to, to talk about with regard to functional programming, so there are all these, um, you know, these abstractions that have arisen in category theory that have proven to be um, quite useful. I can speak from personal experience here, uh, but it's generally agreed within the functional programming community, at least the, the sort of statically typed functional programming community, that these abstractions um, are, are very useful and they come up again and again in different programming situations in pure functional programming. And so, and I was talking about the sort of idea of um, point-free programming, where we're just saying this function equals, you know, say you have a function f and you just want to say, well, it's a composition of gene h. That's very good. That's the sort of categorical viewpoint of it that you, you don't need to talk about um, what f does on input x. You know, you don't just say f, when given input x, returns g of h of x. You just say f equals the composition of g and h. Okay, so not to belabor the point, this is just kind of a review, and um, what I wanted to talk about today is you say, all right, you know, I sort of buy this a little bit, anyhow. Um, it does sound like it's going to lead to shorter programs, at least sort of, a little bit shorter, because I don't have to talk about my inputs and outputs, I just kind of glue things together. Um, so maybe that's a little bit of a savings at the possible cost of having my programs be a little more cryptic and hard to understand. 
that I mentioned last time, you know, I, I do think there's a good answer to that, which is we just need better IDEs, better development environments that can show us more information about our short little programs. Um, and so the, the battle days of just running a command line compile tool and getting a list of type error messages, that that, that should be consigned to, to history. We should not do that anymore. Um, we should have interfaces that, that um, let you see error messages and other information about your program. We need to also get out of this mindset that the type checker is just, you know, oh, please just don't let it find any more type errors in my program. I just want to move on. The type checker is there to tell you all kinds of super useful information about your program. You know, the types abstract, static types abstract the runtime behavior of programs. They tell you, well, I don't really know what this function does, but if you give it an int, it might diverge or raise an exception or something, but if it does return normally, it's going to give you an int. And that's the type for int to int function uh, and so forth. So it's it's really crazy, you know, not to leave all that information squirreled away inside the compiler and not make it use, you know, accessible. And I could say, you know, it's one thing if you're writing kind of, you know, everyday code, you know, all right, fine, I can just sort of eyeball code and see what's going on. But let me assure you that if you were writing um, extremely tricky, dependent type, dependently type code, um, you need help from the compiler. You cannot just eyeball that stuff. Your eyeballs will, <laughs> you can eyeball it, all right. You might be have bleeding eyeballs at the end of the day because um, it's just, it's very tricky to figure out what's happening without some help. You can run all the type checking algorithms in your head if you want, um, but it's not easy to do. And a lot of times it's, you may not be exactly sure what they're doing, so it's hard to even run them, uh, which is not a good thing, but that's, that's a topic for another day. But anyway, what I wanted to talk about today on my short little commute here on a kind of a grayish 29 degrees here in December. It's a little hard to believe that we haven't even started winter yet. Um, 29 degrees is nothing for Iowa, but and for many other places too, of course. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was you say, all right, this categorical story where I compose, you know, I define my function by composing it or using combinators to build it together, uh, you know, glue pieces together. That sounds sort of appealing. I can kind of see why that might be nice. But, um, but I got you though. <laughs> Here, you can get me. You say, um, yeah, but how do you propose to do recursive functions or looping functions of any kind this way? Right? It's one thing to be kind of, oh, I'm gluing this together and gluing that together. But when you write a recursive function, and in pure uh, functional programming, you're, you know, we don't have the comparative while loops or for loops or something the way we do in um, mainstream imperative languages like Java or something. We have, we generally are writing programs by recursion. So you say, how are you going to write recursive functions with combinators, right? Don't you need to say, well, I mean, how are you going to get away from, how are you going to be point free with this, right? You've got to say, I take an input, I pattern match on the input, you know, say you're doing something on it with a list, you know, if it's an empty list, do this. If it's a cons, you know, that is a head, X and a tail, X's, let's say, um, blah, blah, do some stuff and make a recursive call on X's. How are you going to get away? How are you going to do that in a point-free way? That seems like you've got your up to your elbows in points. You cannot. How can that be point-free? To which the uh, ardent, uh, categorically-minded functional programmer will say, ha, 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 we have an answer to that. <laughs> and and truly, there is, there is an answer to that. Um, and it goes by the terminology, um, I believe they say structured recursion schemes or just recursion schemes. 
Um, recursion schemes are, hey, wait for it, combinators <laughs> for writing recursive programs. And um, there's quite the little liter sub-literature in the functional programming research literature about recursion schemes. And the most basic recursion scheme is FOLD. Um, and uh, if you're, uh, you know, if you've programmed at all in functional setting, you run into fold, um, and uh, fold. Let's just say for the special case of lists, and, you know, pure functional lists. We have the empty list, and we have the list that's built with cons. That's old terminology from Lisp days. The cons of a head element and a tail, which is the, the rest of the list. So the list one, two, three is really cons of one onto cons of two, onto cons of three onto nil. So you build up, and in general. Um, with data types, uh, what is, I think, properly understood as inductive data types, you're building data, bigger pieces of data up from smaller pieces of data incrementally by applying some constructors. And so here, cons and nil are the constructors. Um, and so, uh, you know, so when you're, um, so to do, to implement a recursive function over list, well, at least some of the recursive functions over list, um, you can use a fold. And what a fold does is it says, well, you tell me what value should be used for the base case. And please also tell me how to combine the head of the list and whatever we get from the recursive call on the tail. Uh, and then the fold, if you provide these things, then the fold basically is going to do the recursion for you. Um, it's going to recurse through the list for you, and it's going to, uh, you know, whenever there's a cons, it's going to call the function you said to call when there's a cons. And whenever there's an, an empty list, it's going to return the value you said to use for the empty list. So you can do a fold over list. A fold over list defines a recursion with, from basically two ingredients, a base case and a step case. And it actually sounds a little bit like... Um, you know, if you think base case, step case, that sort of sounds like mathematical induction or something. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yes, it will. There will be a relation to mathematical induction. Just wait for it. We're, uh, there's a plan. That my, my plan is slowly forming. So chapter three of the podcast, which will be coming up pretty soon, will be about the Curry-Howard isomorphism, where we'll talk about um, the connection between base and step case for mathematical induction and base and step case for programming with recursion schemes. Um, so anyway, so the so that's the idea of a recursion scheme. It is a combinator that essentially um, you give it sort of the ingredients of the recursion and it's going to basically it's going to more or less do that recursion for you from those ingredients. And um, and this is a well-studied uh, combinator from the point of view of category theory. So there's a very um, Standard, nice, actually pleasant, you know, surprisingly and pleasantly easy to follow description of this technology in, from the perspective of category theory. Um, and that's something uh, I would like to tell you about, possibly. Um, but now I've just about reached my destination, and so I think I'm going to wrap up. So to wrap up, it's kind of the, there's a sort of puzzle if you like this point view programming. How are you going to deal with recursion? It seems like it. It's hard to conceive of how you could do it without being recursive. And again, the 
the hardcore categorical functional programmer will just laugh and say, ah, ha, 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 we know how to do that. It's structure recursion schemes. And the... <laughs> And so once you're wowed and overcome by their um, amazing categorical definitions, you will, you will have a question for them, though, which is, can you do um, all the functions that I want to do, or can you just do some of them? And they say, uh, just, just a second, let me point you to um, about a dozen other papers <laughs> that, that tell you more about that, that problem. So anyway, um, thank you very much for listening, and that's, that's it for today.